Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, brightening up your June gloom with an episode that can only be described as epic with a capital E. Happy Top Chef finale week to all those who celebrate. To preview the occasion, we're joined by a very special guest. We have Top Chef executive producer Donine Arquinez with us today to break down why this season of Top Chef World All-Stars has been so damn special and why you should drop everything to tune into the finale on Thursday night. We also dive into Donine's incredible journey from being a production assistant in 2006 when the show started to executive producing the show today. I ask her what her favorite challenges have been over the years, which city she most enjoyed filming in, and of course, what the show will look like without the great Padma Lakshmi, who announced last week she'll be moving on from the show starting next season. Speaking of culinary legends, Father Saul joins me to discuss a weekend that saw Los Angeles dominate the medal count at the James Beard Awards, with Angelinos racking up more awards than Kim Jong-un at the North Korean ESPYs. We give love to Anna Jack Tai, giggle at Eater's petty behavior towards Bill Addison, and reflect on what these awards mean for LA's continuing culinary ascendance. One more thing, dear listener, we're actually going to be back on Saturday with a Top Chef finale recap, so don't pack your knives just yet because you will not want to miss that. What a week, what an episode, what a life. Without further ado, let's chow down. Dear listeners, I could not be more excited today because we are joined by a very, very special guest. It is Donine Arquinas, the executive producer of the best food show on TV, hands down, top chef. Donine, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing awesome, especially since we're uh, about, you know, 36 hours away from the finale. Is that right? Yeah. I'm very excited for everybody to see it. I, uh, I'm assuming this is not the case because it's not a live show and you've been doing this for a while now, but any, uh, pre-finale jitters? No. Yeah. I'm just, like I said, more just excited for people to see it for the culmination of the season to be out there. Well, it's been an incredible season. Uh, for those who don't know, it's very special season 20 happening in London. It's uh, world all-stars. And I want to talk about that and what has made the season so special, but first I want to learn a little bit about you and and your path to becoming the executive producer of Top Chef. You've been there since the beginning of the show. Is that right? Yeah, I started as an office PA season one, and I was able to actually travel to San Francisco with the crew. Um, and yeah, just been working my way up ever since. That's awesome. Were you always a foodie? Like, Was the plan to get into food television, or was it just sort of kismet that this happened? I think it was just kismet. I um, actually was kind of a picky eater to begin with. Um, not, you know, and there's definitely things I enjoyed and I enjoyed cooking or baking, but um, I was not necessarily focused on food at that point. Yeah. Have you become a foodie since? Absolutely. Yeah. I think because I've been able to have the opportunity to go eat at some amazing restaurants and have food cooked by these amazing chefs. Even if I'm not sure if I'm going to like something, I will try it. And so I think it's just gotten more adventurous um, as the years have gone on to try new things and, you know, and then discover that, oh, actually, I do like that. And I didn't think I did or, you know, giving it another shot. And the way somebody prepared something was like mind blowing. And I'm like, okay, I can eat this that way, you know. 
Yeah. Is there anything uh, that comes to mind that like you really, that, that your experience with Top Chef has really turned you on to in terms of food? Uh, that's a good question. I would say, hmm, I would say probably I'm more, um, I'm kind of more adventurous when it comes to vegetables these days. Um, I, because I mm-hmm. am not a person who enjoys like actually like bitter taste, like bitter is not my favorite um taste and a lot of vegetables mm. tend to be bitter earthier side um and but the more that i've eaten them the more that i've had them prepared various ways the more i've they've kind of grown on me um one thing that i still can't do is uh truffle um which is kind of blasphemous in my world like everybody loves truffles but there's something <laughs> fun about a truffle that i just does not sit right with me um but i do like mushrooms other mushrooms prepared different ways um which wasn't something that I grew up eating for sure. Does that apply both to fresh truffles and like truffle oils and like truffle flavorings? Yeah, I think truffle oil is way worse than like a fresh truffle for me, but um the agreed. But fresh truffles and stuff that yeah, they're just even the smell of them make me really kind of like grossed out. Um I think that but I've seen those <laughs> Like cilantro with some people, you know how some some people cilantro tastes like soap, and some people love it. I love cilantro, but um, yeah, much this truffle. There's something in the truffle that does something that's like it's not sitting right for me. Uh, great for your wallet that that's the thing that yeah. you don't uh, that you don't True. gravitate towards. So could be worse. Uh, so. I, I don't know a lot about how the behind the scenes of unscripted television works, but I understand that PA to executive producer is a pretty wild and impressive ride. Was that sort of your goal when you first joined Top Chef? You know, did you think like one day I'm going to be in that EP chair or, you know, what, what was the journey like? How did, how did it go? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, when I first started Top Chef, I didn't really even know what I wanted to do exactly. I moved to Los Angeles thinking I really wanted to work in documentaries and that kind of thing. Um, and I, but I needed a job, right? So I moved to, um, LA September after I graduated from college and I had been lucky enough, um, before my graduation to meet some alumni that were living down in Los Angeles. And they all said, you know, when you make it down here, send us your resume. We'll pass it around if, you know, if anything comes up. And so I did, you know, waited a couple of weeks and finally got a response um, for a job interview for Top Chef, which was at the time, obviously not known. It was a cooking comp, I was told it was a cooking competition um, similar to Project Runway made by the same company that produces Project Runway which got me super intrigued mm-hmm. because I watched Project Runway my senior year of college. I work at a fabric store in the summertime. So I was very, I was like, oh yeah, anything to get close to this, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, <laughs> so I interviewed for, I interviewed for that and yeah, it just kind of took off from there. And, um, you know, I've done other things in between, but I was able to come back the next season as an AP and then, um, a couple seasons later, the producer who was producing the quickfire challenges and booking the guest judges was booked on another show and couldn't come back. And so that spot opened up and I had been around enough that they gave me the opportunity to move up into that role. And, um, you know, it just kind of went from there. I think I've been very lucky. I think, you know, obviously I try to work hard and I really care about this show. Um, and I think I work hard, but, um, but it also takes a little bit of luck and scheduling because we're in a freelance world and, um, 
you know, sometimes you don't know the schedule in advance and it comes up and you might already be booked on something. Um, but I've been lucky enough yeah. that it's out where I've been able to roll from one season to the next and, and then be a part of Top Chef Masters and other spinoff versions of the show. So, um, yeah, so I've really grown with the show and um, been lucky enough to be able to run it now. And the the role that opened up was producing the Quick Fire Challenges. Is that right? Yes. And do you remember the first Quick Fire Challenge that you were in charge of? I sure do. It was the Pizzeria Uno Quick Fire Challenge in Chicago. And it was the very first Quick Fire. And we took all the chefs arrived at Pizzeria Uno and they got a taste um, you know, deep dish pizza. And then they moved into their house and they had to like make pizza at their house. And like Rocco and Padma went to the house and ate at the house. And um, I remember that first one because I didn't really fully understand all the things that I was responsible for. You know, I was kind of like learning as I went and I thought I had everything, but the one thing that I didn't have was plates and utensils. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I wasn't prepared with plates and utensils and, um, but we got them. But it was like one of those things I was like, oh, that's me. I got it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. That's hilarious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you learn you learn as you go. That's really, uh, I feel like that's applicable to any job, but surely the stakes are a little higher when you've got uh, you've got the, the, the role of doing the quick fire challenges for Top Chef. That's amazing. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about this particular season because it has been absolutely mind-blowing. I mean- one of the things that makes Top Chef so incredible is the setting of each season, right? It's, it's you know, the city does so much to shape the challenges and the narratives. This was always going to be a special season because of the world all-stars, the landmark nature of it. How did you choose London as the setting for this very special season? Well, I think we all knew um, that we wanted the season to be set in an international city. Um, something mm -hmm. that felt big for season 20, you know, and it's always been kind of one of those goals to do an entire season overseas. And, um, when we were talking about cities, London, um, was kind of like, you know, in the middle of North America and Asia and like kind of brought everything kind of together in a way. And then also there was not a Top Chef franchise in London, um, hopefully there will be eventually, but, hmm. um, there was not one. And so there wasn't, there wasn't a competitor coming from London. So it kind of felt like a nice, um, even playing ground, like not that anybody had been like competing in London. Um, so it was like great international city, great food scene, um, and just lent itself really well to be able to bring in all these amazing guest judges too, like, you know, Gagan from Thailand and, um, we had some people from Mexico and yeah. Canada. So it was kind of in the middle. Yeah, that makes sense. I, and, and as you said, yeah, you have been able to bring in such incredible guest judges and people to make cameos. And another thing that I've really enjoyed is you've done such a great job of utilizing all that the city has to offer in terms of like different cuisines and its culture. And I think like subverted our expectations on this podcast of, you know, how exciting British food can actually be. Yeah, I would say visas. <laughs> Um, you know, because we are, um, <laughs> we can fly in people from 11 different countries from around the world into London and, you know, every country has different travel restrictions and, um, things like that. And so, um, we had to be able to get visas for every chef to come to London and be able to work in London. Um, and then same thing also knowing, cause we knew when the season started, we were going to be doing the finale in Paris. We also needed to make sure that before we started filming mm -hmm. that they 
also were able to get into Paris in case they make it to the finale because we don't know. So, you know, we didn't want to get there and be like, oh, they can't enter the country, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah. getting all that stuff done in advance, you know, it's like an eight to 10 week process. So we had to have everything like we had to know who was competing well in advance, um, more so than a regular season. Yeah, I bet. That sounds like a, like logistical challenges for sure. Like wh- Another thing that's really stood out to me about this season is for some reason, a lot of Top Chef seasons have a lot of heart. Like I think back on like the Portland season right after COVID, right? That one to me had a lot of heart. It was very personal. Um, and, you know, there was just a sense of togetherness. And I feel like this season has really replicated that in a, in a powerful way, especially some of the relationships between chefs like Amar and Ali famously, right? Their bromance is particularly heartwarming. I'm curious if you if you can think of any factors that maybe contribute to what has given the season so much heart. Gosh, you know, I, you know, I think part of it has to do with the fact that they're all doing it again. Um, you know, I mm. think when you come on the show the first time around, um, you're maybe a little bit more guarded because you're not sure what's going to be, what you're going to look like on TV, right? So you're a little bit more nervous coming into mm-hmm. it. And um, I think, you know, they're all winners and finalists. They made it very far. They did well in their season. So I think that they came in with a little bit more openness than um, they may have the first time around. Yeah, and, the, you know, the ice was broken, to, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing also is it is a competition, right? So um, the crew can't really get, very close to the chefs, you know, like we can't like form bonds with them. We've got to keep it really separate because it's a competition at the end of the day. And it's like, you know, we want to make sure that that's everything is fair and nobody feels like there's playing favorites or anything. And um, so then they're really become like, they're their own unit and they really rely on each other. Um, So yeah, we think that's part of it as well. That's interesting because I know that like another unscripted uh, TV shows uh, that I watch, like for example, The Bachelor. Um, I know that like they get really close with their producers, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and um, that's it's, not it's the case here. Yeah, it's a different. Yeah, it's a different. Um, that's definitely not the case here. Yeah, and I guess that would contribute to them needing to fend for themselves and lean on each other. That's really interesting. Another thing that I've really enjoyed about the season have been. The challenges, I mean, the challenges in Top Chef are always incredible. My wife is always amazed by how seamlessly y'all are able to like integrate the sponsorships as well in a very, in a way that feels very organic and in a way that like is actually interesting. It's like, you know, you see the sponsor and immediately you're, you start your, your, your head starts racing. Oh, what are they going to do this time? And you guys always do it really well. But this season in particular, like the Goggin challenge was incredible what the process what's the process for coming up with challenges is there like a is it just like a writer's room where y'all are throwing around ideas or or you know how do these come together pretty much it's kind of, it's very similar to that except for it's just our challenge producers so it's uh it's me it's our my co-ap and then we've got a whole team of producers there's um like four challenge producers and two ap's and we all like contribute ideas to the conversation we'll write up ideas and we'll discuss them and a lot of times um you know somebody has an idea but it's not exactly quite the right one or like how can we turn that into like an individual challenge or make it a team challenge or can we make it more exciting or more fun or how is it more difficult and it's a conversation and so it's definitely um evolving things and I think that uh, also you know Casey Criley who's uh, my boss and you know runs magical elves and our executive bravo also helped push us to like 
really think about challenges in a new way. How are, how are we doing service that's different than something that we've done before? Um, you know, cause there's going to, I mean, there's only so many, so many ways you can serve food to people. Right. So, but we are still trying yeah. to kind of figure out ways to change it up and make it feel fresh, but it always, I think every season we're lucky enough that we do travel for every season. So we're always set into a different destination and that immediately gives us something fresh to work with, you know, cause every region has their own specialty dishes or things that are like really popular there. Um, to kind of start the conversation. And so like, you know, like with London, obviously we knew we wanted to do pub food and like Wellingtons and all the like traditional British things. But we also look after you look at the destination, then we look at food trends and what are other chefs doing that are, that's cool mm-hmm. and exciting. And that's where Gagan comes from. Um, you know, what he's doing in his restaurant is really cool and different and make way, um, which is, which is exciting. Yeah. I, uh, as you're talking, like all of these challenges have been just like coming back to me and just thinking about the, the breadth and sort of like richness of all of them over the years. Is there a challenge that's sort of like risen to the top as your favorite one that you remind, you remember particularly fondly? I think there's a few. Um, I think for a long time, the answer always was the Charlize Theron challenge in the Texas season where they had to make a dish fit uh. for an Eagle Queen. It was a very straightforward <laughs> challenge. The food they made was really cool looking. Um, you know, so that one definitely was a favorite. I mean, uh, early days, like season six also, when we had all those French chefs around the table uh, with Joël Robichon, and it was like, you know, they're just making a dish with a sauce. Like, it wasn't that, like, it was pretty straightforward culinary challenge, but because of who was sitting at that table, it, the pressure was on and it was really exciting. I also talk about... Mm-hmm. Um, Street was one of my my favorite quick fire challenges. Um, you know, it was really fun to see how we were going to like work puppets into a quick fire challenge. Um, so yeah, there's been fun ones. And then Parma in Italy was amazing. That is one of my favorite food cities in the world. And I think you guys did it such justice. That was one of my favorite, favorite, uh, absolute like, uh, travel detours of top chef hands down. Uh, I have to mention Buddha because he has been an absolute force this season. And I, I wanted to ask you a question, which is something that me and my co-host have talked about a lot. And Buddha is incredible because he's such like us, a fan of the show and a student of the show. And he's been able to like, like really, I think, use that to his advantage in the way that he, he, he tackles challenges. I'm curious, do you think that that means that the show can be quote unquote hacked by someone who studies it enough. Like you as the producer who comes up with challenges, do you feel like he's kind of hacked the system? I don't know if, I don't know if the show could be hacked necessarily, but I do think that you can do things to help yourself. Um, I think uh, Sarah doesn't talk about it as much, but she is just as much of a fan of the show as um, Buddha. She's very familiar with all the challenges mm. as well. Um, and I think, you know, we heard from Nicole earlier this season, like that she, she knew we were coming to London. So what did she do? She practiced Yorkshire pudding, right? So I think there's a little bit of a level that everybody knows coming into it. Like if you're going to some city, of course, you've got to study where you're going. Cause you know, if you've seen the show, obviously, yes, you know, that we're going to hit some of those like key things within the city. You may not know exactly what we're going to do with it, but, um, you know, I'm sure 
who'd had no idea that we were going to make them do three Wellingtons, you know, like that one was a crazy challenge. Um, But it was, um, yeah. So I think that there are definitely things that you can do to help yourself, but at the end of the day, if you can't execute, it really doesn't matter. You have to have a strong foundation to be able to actually like put those things into practice, you know, Um, because people attempt to do it, but it's not always successful. And, um, you know, and there's even little things like I remember, uh, Jim from season 14 from, uh, Charleston, he, he went to the Whole Foods mm-hmm. in Charleston before filming started so that he could see like the layout and know where everything was so that he was like prepped and ready to go. Um, so, you know, there's people have, in the past too, who've done, done their studying. Um, so yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Has anyone ever bring brought as many molds as Buddha has brought to this season? I'm not sure if they brought as many, but, um, actually, so Victoire and, uh, uh, Begonia both brought quite a few molds with them as well. They just didn't um, maybe use them as much, but um, yeah, they're, you know, every chef's got their like thing that they have to have. And for Buddha, it happened to be molds. Yeah. Their tricks up their sleeve. Yeah. Richard Blaze probably was uh, just carrying around tons of liquid nitrogen with him at all times. What was your favorite moment of shooting this season? Are there any like moments that you look back on and are like, wow, that was, that was special. I mean, I think, um, you know, cooking in Claire Smith's three-star Michelin restaurant was pretty amazing that we were able to pull off restaurant wars there. Um, I think, honestly, like just, I was so excited when all the chefs arrived in London and like that first moment of them meeting each other and like just getting into the kitchen and having to immediately start working with each other, just, it felt big and exciting right out of the gate for us. And I think, um, that just that was awesome. I mean, all of the beginnings of Top Chef feel a little like when you're at, you know, summer camp and meeting these people that you know you're going to become close to <laughs> for the first time. But this one had had even more of that feeling. And maybe it does come back to what you were saying earlier about they've done this before. Their walls yeah. are down. They're ready. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing too, actually, I should not, I should definitely mention is Ellen DeCast showing up on the boat was also like, in the last episode was just amazing. Like um, he had a prior engagement. We already knew that the day before um, the day that we were filming. Um, but that was the day that the challenge ha- we, we had to shoot. So, um, and also I know he doesn't like to do judging um, in general. He doesn't usually do those roles on television. So uh, we did not have high hopes that he would appear, but um, yeah, the day before, the night before, they let us know that, hey, he might be able to stop by and if he wants to say hi to Tom. And we're like, okay, but if he comes and says hi to Tom, can he just like pop in the kitchen and just say hello to the chefs too? Because they would just really love it. Um, and they made it happen. And gosh, they were so excited. So when you told the contestants that Alan was not going to be able to be there, did you mean it? Or did you no, know that really you were going to pull off a surprise? We didn't know. We didn't know until after that, that he was, and literally all we heard was that he was going to stop by and say hi to Tom because they knew each other. Um, And that's where my producers are amazing and talked to the team and really like worked with them to kind of just like, you know, this right window of time when Tom was going to do his walkthrough to like get him into the kitchen. Damn. So you guys actually made that, like, I, I thought, oh, wow, they're just tricking the chefs. But no, it was actually a surprise. That's really cool. We watched it happen live. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. Last question on the season is, 
It's season 20. A lot of people, if they hear season 20, they're not going to tune into a show because they're like, I missed the first 19 seasons, you know? Obviously, that's not exactly how this works because it's a competition show. But for people who feel like they've maybe missed the quote unquote Top Chef boat, what would your argument be to have them start with this season? That is a great question. I think that, um, yeah, I think you, you know, obviously we do have a lot of callbacks like, you know, with the rice challenge and whatever, but at the end of the day, it's all about the chefs and the food that they're creating and their stories. And um, if you like watching cooking shows, if you like learning about people and cultures, I feel like you can really get into this show. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a level of competition that's fun, but then there's also that sense of camaraderie. Um, that we also see out throughout the season. So it's like, I don't know. I feel like it's a feel good, but also competitive and fun show to watch. Yeah. It's that perfect. I agree with you. I mean, it's the perfect mixture of like competitiveness and heartwarming camaraderie to use exactly your word. It's like, you don't always get that with competition. It's usually just cutthroat competition, but no, this, this balance strikes that balance really well. It brings me to, a question about sort of the past of Top Chef. I feel like I have to ask you this as someone who you've been there since the beginning. You know, I think just the casual viewer can observe some things that have changed over the years in Top Chef, right? One one thing, a couple things that I've noticed over the years are things like I feel like, and maybe I'm just imagining this, and maybe you can tell me I'm wrong, but. I feel like we used to get more uh, more sort of behind the scenes drama. Like we used to get more sort of like they're at the house. Um, someone didn't like the way they were spoken to uh, that day and they sort of like, you know, hash it out back at the house and whatnot. Um, I feel like we don't get that as much these seasons. Is that because, is that a choice or is that just because that's not happening anymore? I think it's not happening the same way that it used to. Um, and also, I mean, we definitely are still shooting with the chefs, you know, after they're done with a challenge or at night or whatever, um, which I think you saw because this season, every episode was supersized. There was definitely a lot more of that this year. Um, and so, but I just think that, um, you know, the chefs are just a little bit more aware of what they're mm-hmm. saying and how they're behaving on television. I, you know, I've mentioned this before to other people is that, you know, production started in 2005. And I remember that was like the year that I signed up for Facebook. Like that's, it was just brand new, you know? So social media wasn't a thing and people were not holding up a mirror to you the way that they are now, um, you know, when you're appearing on television. And so I just think um, in general, and I think and that goes across the board on, even other competition shows and other reality shows, the people are just a little bit more aware of their behavior. Um, But at the same time, I also just think that that's just how also um, socially, how we've kind of all evolved, you know? Yeah. That's a great point. I, I didn't really think about the fact that yeah, 2006, I think I signed up for Facebook too that year these days we all kind of know how to like we all are hyper aware that we're being observed at all times but back then 2006 we didn't you know we i think you could probably have ignored a camera in the room but now we all know how to act in front of a camera it's a great point what is your favorite city that you have shot in and why for top chef i mean i mean i was like i always love paris of course um 
but I think, you know, the, like the full run of a season being there for, you know, two months, I probably had the most fun in new Orleans. Um, I feel like new Orleans just has that like vibe that no other city in America has. There's like, just like a certain life to it. You know, everybody's out, the music's playing. Like it's just got an energy that I don't think you can beat in a lot of other places. And some great challenges in New Orleans too. So talk about utilizing the uh, the sort of like richness of the culinary like landscape there. Oh. I think you guys did a really good job there. Well, I like when I think back on all of the seasons of Top Chef and all of the places you've been. It feels to me like there aren't that many places left to go. I'm curious: are there any regions or cities that you haven't yet shot in that you're particularly interested in? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that for the last actually a couple of years, um, I think the biggest um, cities that keep continually getting mentioned online, like on Twitter and stuff that I see or, you know, from fans, is they're like, when are you going to Atlanta and when are you coming to Philadelphia? Those are two big cities that we haven't hit up yet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so those are always on the list. Um, you know, aside from the Tucson finale, we really haven't hit up American Southwest. I think that there's some interesting stuff there that could be done. Um, and you know, season four was in Chicago, but other than that, we really haven't been to the Midwest. So, um, I feel like that region definitely has a lot to offer. Um, so yeah, so I think there's definitely still a lot of stuff to play with. We've never been to like Appalachia, you know, there's just, um, a lot of places still left in the United States that have their own like regional diversity that we haven't really tackled. Yeah, it's true. It's true actually now that you mention it. Um I Philadelphia is a particularly interesting one cuz I'm sure you saw at the James Beard Awards, but they kind of cleaned up uh, in terms of the biggest awards. It feels like Philadelphia is having a real culinary moment. Yeah, I mean, and they've got amazing chefs there. They have for a while. Um so yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot left. All right. Yeah, a lot to go. We're not. We're not. Uh, we're going to be recycling cities anytime soon. Um, you know, I I have to ask you about this just because it's been you know been the something that's been on all Top Chef fans' minds for the last you know uh, five four, four or five days. But obviously, we've seen the news that Padma uh, will not be returning to the show next season. Any any sort of like you know reflections on twenty years of working with Padma, just in terms of like what she's brought to the show. And, um, you know, any, any sort of inclinations of how the show might be different now that she's gone? Yeah. Gosh, I, you know, it's interesting. I have no idea what it's going to look like without her. I think she's obviously done an amazing job and the fans love her. I love her. She does bring a lot to the table for sure. And that is, that is going to be, um, hard to replace. And I don't know that you you can't really replace that. We have to do something different, you know? but yeah, I'm just am so thankful for the time that she gave us, you know, and um, I'm sure and so many, I think you saw online and stuff like all the chefs, the love that they have for her too, because, you know, she really does care. And um, yeah, we're sad to see her go, but I'm excited to see what's next for her too, though, because, you know, her show Taste of Nation is so amazing. And I know she's got other things that she's thinking about. So I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I think Taste the Nation is a perfect show in terms of like balancing the food and the the narrative and the like uh, learning and the social issues. I I'm really excited to see another season of that. But yeah, I, I mean, any any like uh, favorite? What's your favorite Padma memory over the years? 
not to like, you know, reminisce too much or, you know, get too emotional or anything. Uh, and by emotional, I mean me. I'm the one who's going to get emotional here. Don't worry. I was too, I was mulling up a little bit too much. I'm, it's, it is sad to say goodbye, but, um, you know, Padma's always been amazing. And, um, you know, every year she does like a, a catered lunch for the crew as a thank you, which has always been really nice. And I'm going to miss like actually having Krishna on set. She's brought Krishna over the years since, oh gosh, it was season eight, I think was her first, um, first year back as a new mom. And um, it's been fun to watch her grow, you know, also over the last 12, 14 years, 12, 13 years. Um, and, and yeah, so she's just the, but you know, and I think that there's, it's always fun to see those moments that you don't plan, but they happen of like, you know, champagne Padma in the all-star season, you know, where <laughs> we were doing a, you know, one of those branded quick fire challenges kind of where it's like, you know, an airline challenge and she's just drinking some champagne, having fun with Jonathan Laxman and Stephanie Smar makes a comment in an interview and then voila, champagne Padma is born, you know? Um, <laughs> it's just those fun little things that are certainly going to be missed. Yeah. Well, I have no doubt that if any show can figure out what's next, uh, it's Top Chef. So I cannot wait to see it personally. Um, you know, this is an LA food podcast. So I have to ask, where do you like to eat in LA? Oh my gosh. I'm such a creature of habit. It's horrible. Um, I, <laughs> I, my favorites are like Republic and I love Scopa Italian Roots, uh, Antonio's restaurant. I oh, really yeah. love that pasta and the rice ball. Um, you know, I'm actually going to, Fly provisions tonight um with some friends and so yeah so wow so you're like, you're staying it keeping it in the top chef family huh yeah I, you know I, I they're great chefs um but uh they are, yeah those they are. are like my my go-tos um but then you know i do love to explore what's new when i have time <laughs> which is not that as frequent as i would like who has time these days, right? But there's always time for another meal. Um, Donnie, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, as I said, we are so excited for the finale. Um, you know, I'll let you know we did Fantasy Top Chef this year and I got my butt kicked. But even so, I still think this is my favorite season ever. So just congratulations awesome. on another epic season. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. That was Donnie Arquinez. Wow, everybody. I can't wait to watch the Top Chef finale after that. I don't know about you, but I'm dropping everything and tuning in at 9 p.m. on Thursday. I am stoked. Don't go anywhere. After the break, we'll be right back with Father Saul to recap how Los Angeles pretty much won it all at the James Beard Awards. Joining us today for the LA Food Podcast recap of the James Beard Awards is a man who the only award he's ever won is the honor to sometimes co-host this podcast. It is Father Saul. It's the only award I need, man. I, I love I love the uh, selection committee for that process. I respect I respect it. The diversity, I'm here for it. Uh, yeah, man, James Beard Award. It's kind the, of where uh... where it all began for us. This is our very first topic of conversation, really awards and whether or not they matter and Full here we circle. are no it's it's a massive week for the pod for, for the podcast honestly and honestly all who love food there's the james beard awards there's the finale of top chef it's pretty much like christmas for the foodie world it really is it, I, I, it's so funny i didn't you know being sports fans june is always the best time of year for us we got champions league we got nba finals all this exciting stuff stanley cup for those who care and there, little did i know 
Top Chef finales and James Beard Awards landing right about the same time. It's the best time of the year, man. It's Christmas. Did you follow the awards in real time? That's my first question for you. Uh, no, because it seems like a real pain in the ass. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I mean, Gail was hosting. I saw that where at least she opened the awards and kind of like the opening commencement. And they, I didn't realize this. They have like a whole red carpet going on. It's a real Oscars of the American food industry. But no, man. First of all, like yeah. the food awards are like a Monday night, not the easiest time to like, like set time a couple hours aside to watch. Um, so no, I did not watch live, but I, I refreshed Eater consistently for when they dropped their recap. Well, it's it's interesting because yes, it's the Oscars of the food world. They really try to make it like ritzy and glamorous, and and they have started live streaming, and the live stream is is pretty good. But I will say. I think if we ever got the chance to go there and we did like live tweeting, we'd probably win a fucking Pulitzer because honestly, <laughs> it's so hard to get the results in real time. It's like they guard these secrets like they're, you know, guarding the nuclear codes or something. And they really shouldn't, right? The whole idea. I mean, it's a it's a there are media awards. It's a big branding event for the food world. They should make they should try a bit harder to make this like an Emmys or an Oscars. They should get like Kevin Hart to come through and host this shit. Although I think he got canceled for whatever reason. I don't know. Someone who's not canceled <laughs> ideally to like, you know how the ESPYs do like Peyton Manning or Drake is like the yeah. like a goofy comedic host. They should get that going a bit more. Yeah, no, I want I want a more easily accessible way to follow. It's a great, it's a great event. It's super exciting. The nominees we were familiar with and we discussed and some exciting winners too. I wish we could have like followed and, you know, like kind of enjoyed it in real time. Live tweeting is a brilliant idea. I don't know if they make people sound yeah. like NDAs or some shit in the room, but like, no, it's uh. And, and look, luckily at the end of the day, a couple hours after it was all wrapped up, we did get the breakdown of everyone who won. So same result yeah. in the end. I, I was watching it in real time, so I could have live tweeted it that like nothing was stopping me. <laughs> right. But um, it just felt like I felt like weird live tweeting it from my living room. Um, from the live stream as opposed to someone who was actually there. Um, but yeah, man, look, the most important takeaway is that it was a huge night for Los Angeles. I mean, mm. I really don't remember a year in which Los Angeles demonstrated that much dominance of the James Beard Awards. Obviously, there were a ton of nominees, but there were a ton of winners too across categories, media, restaurants, I want, I was originally going to start with the media awards, but I actually think it makes sense to start with restaurant awards. Let's let's go to the food. And there were some really exciting LA winners. So let's start with a restaurant that we actually went to recently, and it's Best Chef California, Justin Pichatrungzi of Anajak Taiwan. Did you catch that? I did. I did. It was exciting to see. Um, totally deserving winner and 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 like, one that's it, 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 it's it's exciting to be it, it's really exciting. We talked about like when oh, like do awards matter? Like sometimes feeling disconnected from the awards, they really reflect like the energy on the ground and what people are super enjoying, or is it like way too grass tops? And you know that that felt right as a place that's like exciting uh, on the rise. Look, they it did win. I think it was the L.A. Times Restaurant of the Year as well. Um, so like like the accolades yeah. are it is it is sort of a hot restaurant of the moment, but no, it was it was exciting to see. Good for him. Thai Taco Tuesdays, one of our favorite meals th during the infamous 
LA food podcast crawl across LA a few weeks back. Uh, no, really excited to see in a, in a deserving winner. It was, uh, I, this was a good example of the James Beard Awards, I think, awarding a restaurant at the exact right time. I think mm-hmm. we have in the past kind of criticized them for sometimes being a little late to the party with certain places. And I think Justin Pichatrungzi in his like trajectory as a chef was going to win a James Beard Award at some point. And this is the right time, I think, in his career for him to get that. It's sort of like when we talk about like, is this the right year for Joel Embiid to have gotten the MVP? <laughs> Maybe not, right? Should he, have, should he have gotten one at some point in his career? Maybe. But this year felt like, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, we'll just give it to him because there's nobody else who's, we can't give it to Nikola Jokic another year, right? Sort of what it feels like here is like sometimes the James Beard Awards does that, but this year they got it right. I think they did. Best Chef California, I think they absolutely nailed this one. No, they did. And you do wonder how the recent reforms to how James Beard goes about um, finding its nominees and selecting, um, I think the, I think they like groundswell seed a bunch of like people who can enter, anyone can enter. And then they change the process of selecting nominees from the existing system that we've talked about before, where only past winners, I think, are part of the voting body to a more diverse and select group, a smaller select group of chefs doing it. And you do wonder if that impacted um, Anjak's ability to come, come through with a win this year. Um, no, no, it's, it's, it's a good timing. He's a young chef, a lot of potential, and you're exactly right. Getting recognized at the right time, along with several other chefs that I noticed who are, you know, whether they're Top Chef alumni or just re- have really burst onto the scene in the past couple of years, rather than having been like a well-known entity for two decades in LA and then finally get the award almost belatedly. Um, so yeah, no, it, it yeah. feels exactly right. And, and hopefully will even provide a bigger platform uh, for Justin to jump off and continue to build his career and success. Yeah, I can't wait to have Anna Jack tie at LAX. I just, that's what I really need. <laughs> um, the most interesting thing about the Best Chef California award, in my opinion, was that four out of the five nominees were from Southern California, Los Angeles yeah. and Costa Mesa. And that is such an, a departure from how California cuisine has typically been thought of, right? It's always been like Northern California, Lil Broing, Southern California with like the French laundry and all the like San Francisco hotspots. Yep. I think this is a real coming of age moment for Southern California, man. It's super exciting. It's been a long time coming. I think it's funny when we, you know, like, I think our timing when we uh, were both living in LA was exactly kind of the moment where, the 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 power started to shift in terms of restaurant uh um sort of popularity and influence from northern to southern you're right like napa valley bay area used to be where the michelin stars were and and where all the focus was and the high-end cuisine and then you saw over the course of the 2010s more and more chefs come and and re like kind of begin to reshape and elevate la's uh food scene build on the already great stuff there and I do think, I think it was recently that like LA had no nominations even in, in the, in the California category. I think it was just a year last, or two ago. Yeah. Last yeah, year. Last year they had, no, no, no. Last year I think they had no wins, but yeah, there were okay. years also where they had no nominations. No nominations. And now you see like, yeah, this is, this is a little statement moment. And I think, uh, 
will again only continue to usher in more more great chefs and more attention to the LA dining scene, which if you couldn't tell by the name of the podcast, we think is pretty good. Yeah, I think we think it's pretty damn good. So moving on from this award, Best Chef California, in sort of the like overall categories, LA also got some love. Marguerite Demansky of Republique, um, also of Sorry Sorry Store and BC Clet, won for Outstanding Pastry Chef. And Ototo and Echo Park won for Outstanding Wine and Other Bev program. I think this is the rare occasion where you've probably been to both of those places. I have not been to Ototo, but have been to uh, Republic. That's an example of like an old standby in LA for sure. That's something I need to get more familiar with. I want to like, this is a great, especially with the advent of the podcast and us talking about awards, obviously got really deep on James Beard this year. I do wonder how often they have repeat winners. I know it's I know it's a possibility, uh, but Republic is something is, is an example mm-hmm. of kind of the flip we were talking about. We've known in LA, you've known they have like the best pastry program, like in the in the fucking city, maybe and well now officially possibly in the state. Uh, so great to see that. Ototo, I've heard of and and I've read a lot about, but would love to go and, and try um, given given the notoriety here. But yeah, no, it's it's exciting stuff. Ototo is next door to Tsubaki, which is that like you right. know, the yeah, Japanese yeah. restaurant, um, a, a true claim for being one of the best blocks in the city as far as food goes. I, I think I think you might be right. Shout out Echo Park really continuing to evolve and hold it down in both positive and negative ways, as we've discussed. Uh, no, it's really exciting. And even as I was looking through, I mean, we we went to, to Anjak and we went to Poltergeist and on the on the L.A. food countdown, James Beard award list. Poltergeist edged out and Jack. So I do, I mean, like while, even as I'm watching the awards and appreciative yeah. of like, the more diverse winners and nominees, I was like, yo, when's our boy Diego going to get on this list, man? Yeah, man. I, Diego's got to get on that list, especially he should just get on the list for outstanding personal story. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I have a feeling that he'll get on there for food as well. Uh, final, final thought on the restaurant awards before we move on to media, but huge night for Top Chef. Gregory Huge. Gourdet uh, won Best New Restaurant for Khan. Damar Brown, who I think was on the Houston season, yep. won for Emerging Chef um, in his uh, in his role at uh, at Virtue over in Chicago. I mean, cleaning up, man, the Top Chef Mafia. I mean, look, it, the Top Chef has obviously always been a, a a sort of a seed program for great chefs who then will go on to James Beard and even Michelin uh, uh, Michelin stars and, and big awards throughout the field. You see it going. It's great to see those winners still in. And even deeper in this case, I don't know if you remember, Top Chef Season 17 LA All-Stars, Gregory Gourdet pitched Khan, the concept for Restaurant Wars. And there, that was the, the episode before yes. Restaurant Wars. He pitched Khan. He got selected as like the winning pitch. Did con won restaurant wars, then opened con like in Portland and won a James Beard Award for best new restaurant. Look from God's mouth to our our ears, from the Top Chef screen to the James Beard Awards, he really crushed it, and it's so exciting. That's like a particularly amazing Top Chef story. And how many times do we watch a restaurant wars? This happened, I think, in season eighteen, Portland with uh, um, so- Shoda's winning uh, Shoda and Maria is their winning restaurant concept. Where I was like dude, I want this restaurant. Yeah. And they went up and did some pop-ups. But this is like the yeah. ideal example of like, hey, that Restaurant Wars concept looks dope. I want to eat it. And Gregory was like, not only will I give it to you, I'm going to sit at the top of the mountain as well. So super exciting and definitely a restaurant I'd love to get down to. It definitely has vibes of like 
Buddha coming into the competition super prepared and then just like doing what he had already planned. Like there's got to be some inclination in Gregory's mind before he goes on Top Chef that he wants to open this restaurant, right? Like I doubt he actually came up with it on the spot, but still a Top Chef success story. And we can't argue with that. Now, before we move on to media awards, I promise this will be the last thing for restaurant awards. I just wanted to point out Philly had a huge night too. They won uh, best out, uh, outstanding new, or I'm sorry, outstanding like overall restaurant and outstanding restaurant group. I didn't realize Philly was having such a moment too. So I will say, so I, I haven't, as, as a major Philadelphia 76ers fan and an East Coast boy at heart, I need, to, I need to make my pilgrimage back to Philly a bit more often. But I do know from friends and from my most recent visit that Philly food scene is on a tear. I think they recently had one of Eater's top uh, top restaurants in America. There's a, a barbacoa place, um, South Philly Barbacoa, maybe it's called, but I can't I can't quite remember that one a couple of years ago. There's some great, interesting concepts happening in the city. Me and my sister and I went out to a couple of great dinners there the last time I was in town. I've not been to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, which won, I think, best restaurant, but um, really exciting to see and a good excuse to get back to the city of brotherly love. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do an LA Food Pod excursion. Well, moving on to the media awards, I think the biggest headline here, as far as Los Angeles is concerned, is that LA Times food critic Bill Addison won the Restaurant Review Award for reviews of Pancho's Tlayudas, Anna Jack, and the great late Pearl River Deli. I mean, this is absolutely huge. Congratulations to Bill. I think the funniest thing about this, though, has been the petty coverage that Eater's given him today. Have you seen this? Yeah, I have. I, I'm, I'm loath to, to throw the accusation out there, but explain what you're referring to. You sent me the original Instagram post where Eater was advertising, or their story was basically like, Los Angeles had such a great night at the James Beard Awards, and I believe their hero image was Kevin Bloodsoe, who we'll get to, um, but... In the caption, they mentioned a lot of different winners, and notably absent from those winners was Billy A. And I thought, okay, well, look, give them some grace. Give them some grace. It's social media. There's limited word count, et cetera, et cetera. I type in www.eater.com and go to their website and look at the article on this. Bill Addison is mentioned in the article for having praised Ototo in the past. And then at the very at, at the very end, at the very end, the last line of the piece says, former Eater contributor and current LA Times columnist Bill Addison also won. Basically. Wow. That's what it was like. Dude, <laughs> Petty LaBelle. Petty LaBelle. That is so funny because all I had seen was the Instagram post, which was like, LA crushed it. Look at all these restaurants. Look at all, look at Kevin Bloodsoe. Also, look at all this media and no Bill mentioned, despite them listing like all the winners in the post. And I was like, <laughs> screenshot deal, like, haha, kind of funny. But you know, exactly what you said word count, maybe slightly petty because he's a direct, direct competitor. That though, in the article, doing a little bit, and it's kind of like uh, in Mean Girls where uh, there's a scene where they're giving out like Valentine's Day cards and the guy comes in and he's like, Valentine's Day for you, for you, and none for Gretchen Wieners. And Bill Addison was Gretchen Wieners in the in the Eater uh, column article. The listeners will understand this reference. Everyone knows Mean yeah. Girls. You're looking at me a little confused. 
But uh, damn, that's that's the Gretchen. No, I love it. That's Honestly, petty. what you're seeing on my face, what you're seeing on my face right now, is the realization that this was the Kyle turned the camera on moment. So this is the part <laughs> I'm clipping for the uh, for the social media. There you go. Um, yeah, man, just absolutely hilarious. But look, we have to give Bill his flowers, and I do have to say those were some particularly excellent reviews. But I I think that Bill's quality of reviews is excellent across the board. And look, you have some massive shoes to fill when you're the yeah. LA Times food critic. You're filling the shoes of the late great Jonathan Gold, man. That's not that's that's not nothing. And to do it with the I think elegance and also unique flair that Bill brings to the role, I got to say, like we've given the LA Times some shit in the past for their like recent foray into becoming like infatuation part two. But the one thing that they keep doing well and that they haven't let go of is keeping the quality of Bill Addison's column up. No. Yeah. Congrats to Bill keeping, keeping, uh, keeping the banner going at LA times, which obviously with, with during Jonathan Gold's tenure, uh, redefined the, the food critic, as a whole, right? Uh, the way it's written about the restaurants they go see. I remember when the hire was made, people were really excited. Um, I, mean, I think there was a little bit of an interim, uh, interim between Jay Gold and Bill, little little effort that went awry. We won't, we won't mention any names, but Bill comes in, crushes it, has been a great representative for LA, uh, and, and congratulations to him on the Beard Award. Very well deserved. Yeah, Bill. Congrats if you ever want to come on the pod, and uh, you know we won't we we won't we won't put it on video if you want to maintain your anonymity. Um, but you know uh, the the offer stands. Moving on, uh, Kevin Bloodsoe, purveyor of Bloodsoe's Barbecue, won in the restaurant and professional category for his book on barbecue. Really interestingly, his co-writer is Noah Galutin. Are you familiar with Noah? I am not. He is, Noah is an Instagram and social media, like chef person. Um, interestingly, he's married to Eliza Schlesinger. Oh, no way. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he's, you know, really making a name. For, I mean, he's been making a name for himself for a long time as like a food writer and food content creator. Um, but recently he's, you know, I've been seeing him everywhere. So, you know, flowers to Kevin Bloodsoe, but you know. Also to Noah, like really huge come up. And uh, this book looks really interesting. I'm not 100% sure I would ever buy it because buying a barbecue cookbook seems like something I'm just like destined to never use. Um, But, you know, could be cool as a coffee table book or just a gift to you. I'll I'll take that gift. I was wondering if it's like, is it purely like, hey, you got to get an industrial size smoker to make this shit or... Will he have some ticks and tips and tricks for the home in it? Uh, no, I look for that gift, even if it's a coffee table one. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like looking at pictures of barbecue? I look at pictures of barbecue all day. It's half my Instagram feed. I'm not mad at all. Yeah, we won't talk about what you do while you look at those pictures, but uh, <laughs> I have no doubt that you're actually being honest right now. A um, couple more LA stories uh, in the media awards. Uh, this one is kind of heartwarming, actually. The late Fatima Ali of Top Chef fame. Uh, won best literary writing for her book Savor. Uh, do you remember Fatima? Yeah, I actually have never seen her season all the way through, um, but I, I obviously know her story and, and very sad news of her passing. Yeah. Yeah. So for listeners who don't know, uh, Fatima, I believe, competed on, I think it was Top Chef Denver. 
So it was yeah, several Colorado. years ago now. Colorado. Yeah, there you go. And um, basically, shortly after filming, she was diagnosed with a horrific cancer, which for a while it looked like she had beat, but then came back with a vengeance. And essentially, in when she found out that it was terminal, um, she sat down and started writing this book. And this book, uh, Saver, is apparently about her, uh, you know, thoughts on, you know, why food matters when you don't have that much life left to live. Um, so I don't know. I'm definitely, I ordered it on Amazon yesterday. Um, sorry, I didn't get it at an independent bookstore, but at least I ordered it. And I am, uh, I'm particularly stoked for this one. She is, I don't know that she did her cooking in LA, um, but her family lived in San Marino, which is right here near South Pasadena. Um, interesting fun fact about her. Did you know that her dad was the attorney general of Pakistan? I, I didn't actually. And I have some family who are actually lawyers in Pakistan, I think working like in, in the legal profession in the public sector there. Hope, uh, look, I can't imagine being the AG of Pakistan is the easiest job in the world. <laughs> so good. So good for him. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, like it just, <laughs> that, that sounds like a like a stressful gig. I, I understand why she didn't follow the family uh, the family business, but no, yeah, I, I mean, Karachi Grammar School. It looks like she went to uh, know a ton of, ton of people from there and spending time from between Karachi and Lahore, and then coming to Southern California. Um, you know, a, a story that's close to home uh, and a book that I think it would be worth 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 tracking down. A good reminder for us all to go back, maybe rewatch some Top Chef Colorado. And, and read Saver. Yeah, Saver. We'll, we're all going to read it. LA Food Pod Book Club. Um, Love it. Yeah, man. Well, I, I do think like he's not the AG of Pakistan anymore because I think he lives in San Marino now. So he made it out, you know, so you don't have to worry about him too much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as you said, can't be a particularly easy gig. Um, last LA story I want to bring up just so that nobody, uh, or actually I'll bring up two more one is uh dieptron formerly of highland parks good girl dinette one in the personal essay with recipes category for an essay that's actually it's actually pretty pretty well written i read it today um it's called dog shit the quas um and it's basically about how like she you know what she learned by failing in the kitchen um trying to make a really difficult dessert and it's it's a very well written piece go and read it i think uh, food and wine published it we'll put it in the show notes um, finally, the shows, we got to talk about the shows, um, that one. So first of all, um, I just wanted to give a shout out to a show that I like quite a bit. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it. Have you seen somebody feed Phil? I've heard of it. I've not seen it. So somebody feed Phil is a Netflix show, uh, which basically features Phil Rosenthal, who is the show creator, writer, I think as well of everybody loves Raymond. And I have to <laughs> say, initially when I like saw the promo for the show, I was like, this is so stupid. This is just some guy who's like really well connected in LA who gets to make his own food show because he's like, you know, the creator of everybody loves Raymond. What the hell does he know? Like he's weird. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> after watching the show, I take it all back. It's extremely well done. The dude is so nice. Like, and, and you know, he's the type of nice that cannot be faked. Like, there is absolutely no way that when the camera turns off, this guy is like mean. He is 
so genuine. He just like listens to people and like smiles at them and just like clearly like brightens up their day and is so enthusiastic about everything he's eating. It's honestly like you completely forget that he's not a chef. He's not connected to the food world in any way. It's just an infectious show to watch about love for food. So I highly recommend it. The show did lose, but I wanted to just give it a mention <laughs> because it's a great show and Phil Rosenthal is an Angelino. But I I, I I just wanted to see if you've recovered from the shock of Top Chef losing to a YouTube show. I for I am I am not shocked at all. And in fact was thinking once once I saw that winner, we may we may want to go and do like a little bit of a a, a ranking of the best food YouTube shows. Cause look, man, you know me. YouTube's where the where, it's where the youth are. It's where some great content's at. I will I, and I will say I'm assuming this is for Top Chef Houston, right? Not the strongest season. Not the strongest season of the show. It was like a, a Buddha beatdown mm-hmm. for like 12 episodes. So uh, no, no. Look, I and I haven't I, I haven't watched the YouTube video yet. I would I do want to. I haven't pulled up. Uh, look, Top Chef Top Chef has to earn it like everyone else. I would be shocked if this season lost. Uh, a James Beard award because this season fucking rocks yes. and it's breaking barriers and we're meeting great new chefs. Um, so, so, but, but the Houston season was, I thought like a, you know, more of a relatively mid top chef season. It's not enough to win every year. Um, you know, and, and I'm looking forward to eventually talking about how this season wraps up, which will be really a really important sort of decision on their part. It'll be exciting. And I do think this season probably has a better shot than the Houston season. And let's check out this YouTube show. Tell me about it. What do you know? I, I, okay. I was a little shocked when I clicked on it because to the best of my, like, you know, deciphering ability, I think it only has about 5,000 views, which <laughs> I have TikTok videos with way more views than that. You know what I mean? So like, I feel like I, I'm low key impressed with mm. James Beard for even finding this thing. Um, or I'm just thinking, is it posted somewhere else where it's actually being watched, but all the links took it to YouTube. So to me, that makes me think that that is the primary place where this thing is broadcasted. Um, Mm. I, you know, it, it's just like, kind of like a very grittily shot, uh, YouTube video about, you know, restaurant takeover with like a Mm -hmm. kind of a cool Instagrammy looking guy, looking chef. Um, (laughs) I didn't, I'll confess I wasn't watching it sound on, so I don't really know what it's about. Um, but I was just shocked at, (laughs) I was just shocked at the like low amount of views, but you know what that did father saw it made me weirdly optimistic about our chances of getting a James Beard Award nomination someday because if if you know hundreds of thousands of views isn't a requisite I literally knew you were going to say that and I can't wait to be there on the red carpet next year live tweeting the show for the fans to follow along finally follow along live with what's happening no look man I I, I it's it's really I mean look we'll have to learn more about about this winning show and if it was in fact posted elsewhere and had more views but like it looks the fact even the fact that even if it was initially like aired elsewhere and then went on YouTube and only had 5,000 views. That is reflective of a real, like a relatively small audience, right? Like people like will follow along with clips from, from shows they watch on YouTube and like they'll get tens to hundreds of thousands of views themselves. So uh, if it is such a small footprint of viewership and they were able to identify it, I'm, I, it makes me more compelled to watch it. I'm really curious about what, uh, like what this is about and, and uh, what, what made it the winning, the winning uh, narrative here. So uh yeah excited and and rooting for top chef next year 
Yeah, well, I I, I want to talk more about the podcast that one, but before we do that, uh, does the name Vishwesh Bot ring any bells? <laughs> That's right, friend of me of friend of me of the pod, baby. He he was part of our discussion on the 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 top sh- sorry the James Beard controversy a couple weeks ago. I believe he's the one who famously took his award down on social media so he could put it right back up <laughs> afterwards. Um, yeah, That's yeah, exactly right. So this guy, right, a couple weeks ago, there's a bit of hubbub around a chef uh, down in down in the south south southern parts of these United States named Timothy Hansus, who you know was uh, basically disqualified from uh, award contention, and we'll actually get to this topic in a bit, but. Um, in protest, some chefs, one chef smashed their James Beard, Beard Award, um, which showed a real dedication to the cause. Um, <laughs> but Vishwesh, he kind of like went halfway and just took it off the wall uh, and clearly was going to put it back up. Um, I was perusing the list of nominees and just found it hilarious that he was actually nominated this year as well. And I guarantee that if he won, he would have 100% accepted the award. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm going to guess 100% he did. And even if he did end up destroying the award he took down, now he has one to put right back up. Maybe he knew he had a win coming, and that's why he was like, yeah. I, can, I can get rid of this one. That's fine. No, I mean, look, it's, it, it is yeah. what it is. Good on James Beard for, I guess, awarding a chef who was criticizing them openly. Or awarding a writer, I should say, right? Um, I think he's a, he was a media award, right? Is that correct? U.S. Foodways. Yeah, yeah. He is. He is a chef, but he was nominated for for I think something he wrote. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna shrug my shoulders at this one. Like, we'll talk a little bit more about the process for weeding out that James Beard is pursuing for, like, you know, weeding out chefs that may have a um, shadier past and and whose uh, you know conduct does not uh, qualify for them for the award, but. Like I, I thought most of the like what the the real issue back then was the transparency of the process, which sure fair, uh, and, and the way they're communicating out. And I think I think wasn't this guy the one who was pissed he wasn't getting uh, reimbursed for going and going to the restaurants uh, and the nominees and eating there. He's like, I want my free food. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get yeah, it, man. Yeah. I get Vishwesh it. He's got, uh, I, I want free food too, Vishwesh. I yeah. get it, man. Yeah. Also. Yeah, so spoken as someone who's never been reimbursed for food I've made you eat. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was saying real quick, you'll yeah, be seeing yeah, the Instagram yeah. post Re- of me real quick, taking our podcast, swagging the podcast out and unfollowing until I get my reimbursements for, for food on the <laughs> oh. Yeah, we really can't afford to be losing followers, my dude. So uh, find a different <laughs> way to protest. Um, speaking of our podcast, podcasts that won. There were a couple of podcasts that won in the media awards. Um, all super like heavy stuff compared to, you know, us, um, <laughs> there's something on the cost and consumption of abalone, which yeah, apparently is an issue. And also something on the, uh, uh, like the twisted past of American school lunches, which was actually produced by, um, chef Jose Andres's, uh, production house. I, I hmm. later saw, um, I, there's also an Emerging Voice Award, which a podcast won, and it's called The Future of Food is You, which, you know, bad title, probably good podcast. My question for you is, do we have to get more serious to win? Yeah, you'll notice there's not like general commentary here. This is like real journalism. 
that people are doing, which may be maybe deeper than we get. Uh, I don't know, man. Let's try to let's try to break the bots. Let's try to let's try to zig when they zag. I will say, so abalone, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, is like its large snail that is harvested, like that is like um, uh, captured in southern Australia, and there was a famous Shark Week. Uh, episode on abalone and abalone divers who went down and they have like a relatively high rate of getting attacked and killed by great white sharks it is the most terrifying gig so for me i haven't listened to the podcast but like fuck the abalones man leave them where they're at don't feed the sharks let's not give them a taste for human flesh but it was a wild thing like literally like like because they have fucking snails are coming up they're like get attacked at the surface. It's nuts. Leave the abalone alone is what I say. Dear listener, in case uh, you haven't perceived it, one of Father Saul's crippling existential fears is the ocean. Um, so he's particularly primed to uh, not be down with this particular issue. Look, I don't know. In my experience of something, uh, if people are going to that lengths to get something, it's probably pretty damn good. I think it was supposed to be pretty damn good. It also sells at a really high rate. That's why people go do it because it's so fucking hard to get because the sharks will fucking get you. That's why. That's why it's a, it, like it sells at a, it's like a really premium product, I think. So I'm right about the ocean. Leave the fish alone. Leave the sharks alone. Leave the snails alone. I'll, I'll go listen to this podcast. Hopefully they mentioned it. That's real. That's real salt content that they're like, by the way, the sharks get them. The sharks get the people. <laughs> well, I, you know, they don't specify in the title what the cost and is of abalone. Maybe the cost is human life. To your point, it, that's literally that is that is correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, man. Any uh, any final thoughts on the on the awards before we uh, before we move on to dissecting the uh, controversy around them? Yeah, yeah, I got one for you. So, look, we we've had a couple conversations about food awards and their meaning and and their validity. Curious, does such an LA heavy James Beard Award uh, reap change or influence how you feel about awards in general? Look, this is the first time we've gone on the podcast discussing consistently the James Beard Awards, the nominees, the, the controversies, and so on, which we'll get to more of in a second. Has your outlook on the meaning or validity of food awards changed at all in this process? It has, and I'll tell you why. Hmm. So watching the awards and watching the winners go up there talk about what this means to them really put it in the context when they're up there of their entire journey not just as chefs but as human beings in the journey in the context of not just their personal journeys too but also in the context of their families' journeys, you know, of their sort of ancestral stories as well, I found it to be really powerful. Now, I am mm. extremely impressionable as a person in general. <laughs> um, I cry at the drop of a hat. I literally, if you just look at me weird, I could tear up. Um, but I have to say, this is one of those it made me think when we were having that original question about do these awards even matter, I honestly think for my part, I was conflating these kinds of awards with listicles. The whole like, you know, 38 essential uh, LA yeah. restaurant or, or 
it's not like it's not like I was conflating them like I was confused, you dick. Like I knew I knew that there was differences between them. But what I mean is is I was just putting them in the same category. I was thinking like, why do they even care if they get these kinds of recognition? You know, like who cares if you're like on the LA Times list of nine exciting new pizza restaurants, right? But something like this, I think, has a really intense weight to it. The beauty of the James Beard Awards is it's not Michelin, you know? You don't have to be a Michelin restaurant to get it. You just got to be excellent. I mean, look at Anajak Thai, right? Like, they are, a, you know, for lack of a better term, just your run-of-the-mill Thai restaurant that has been doing some really special things recently. And for them to get that kind of recognition on the highest level, at the highest stage, with the highest visibility... I, I think that means something, man. What about you? Are, 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 yeah. are, are, are well, your opinions it, any different? I, I think maybe slightly too. And just to clarify your last point, you mean like, you mean run of the mill as in like not five-star luxury, right? I think Michelin is really kind of, aside from the bib gourmand, yeah. is really geared towards like your, you know, $4 signs on Yelp, really like high-end experience when you're talking two and three stars, even one star. Um, and, and it's cool. Yeah, I agree. It's really cool that James Beard is a place where Khan and Anna Jack can get recognized. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, it's, I, I, I'm this, what this makes me want to do. I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a really, look, I love these restaurants. I love these chefs. It's really cool to see them recognized. Right. I appreciate it from that, from that perspective. And I do think, I mean, to the point of our conversations, it seems like some of the changes James Beard has made to diversify their judging pool has, has started paying dividends in the kinds of restaurants that get identified and rewarded I think because you already have Michelin out there um, and, and doing like whatever the high, the highest end stuff. I think it's really cool. It's kind of like a, it's a, the, a kind of a J gold sort of ethos of like finding these small Thai restaurants, these new Caribbean restaurants in Portland and, and rewarding them. I like that a lot. What it makes me want to do, what I think would be interesting. And look, I know we haven't eaten at every one of these restaurants, but maybe if we just went back to a couple of years of James Beard winners and nominees, see who got nominated see who won and see if we might change who the winner should have been yeah. that year. Right. Maybe for like new restaurant that year. Right. Did those age well? Um, who do they miss and leave out of the nominee list? I kind of want to go backwards and see what the gaps were. I have a feeling we would find some lists that did not age well because famously in 2020, they said that they were canceling the awards because of yep. like COVID or black lives matter and all stuff. Right. Uh, but the actual reason they were canceling it is because there were like, the, they had like the whitest nominee or winner pool of all time or something like that. And they were like, <laughs> we can't put this out in the middle of the George Floyd protests. And so they like came up with some fake reason to like, you know, cancel the awards. Um, so I have a feeling if that's any indication, if we went back to like the mid aughts or something like that, we'd find some, you know, pretty horrifically crafted winner lists. So let's give the rightful winners their flowers on the LA food pod, man. Maybe we keep it centered on California and new restaurants or something. We could go back and see what other restaurants that we know opened each year and see if there's a, maybe a, a true rising star that may have uh, gotten overlooked. It's like the redraft, the NBA redraft. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do want to like spend a little bit of time talking about the New York times expose that came out at the end of last week, timed with the beginning of the awards. 
published by Brett Anderson and Julia Moskin, who are actually, they've reported extensively on workplace abuse, specifically in the restaurant industry, um, which I found, you know, they're, they're the right people to be reporting this story. But we have to talk about it because wherever James Beard goes, a little bit of controversy follows, even with a little bit of, you know, even with the shine and the positive vibes of this weekend. Um, if anything, it's kind of unfortunate that this this piece came out at the same time, but it's worth discussing. Basically, the whole piece was about how the James Beard Foundation is now, quote unquote, investigating restaurants. In the piece, the anecdote, uh, which the, the the piece is centered around, about this one nominee, Sam Four, who was who's still nominated and 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 was there at the awards yesterday. Um, investigators called her up, and she says, "quote unquote," interrogated her um, for some of her social media activity, which somebody had flagged as harassment and bullying. Now. The social media activity in question was apparently related to her advocacy for victims of sexual violence. So not the best thing to be, quote unquote, interrogated for. Right. Um, She obviously took some issue with this, uh, feeling like she was being somehow punished for this type of advocacy she was doing. What ended up happening is she was, you know, interrogated by these investigators or, you know, they, they went through their process and then JBF, uh, the foundation informed her that, you know, after their review, she had not been disqualified from the awards. She ended up losing, you know, the award, whatever that's neither here nor there. This all really got me thinking, right? On one hand, this is exactly what people wanted the foundation to do in the first place, right? They wanted them to look into allegations of abuse, problems, allegations of problems, allegations of misbehavior. They wanted to do them to do it independently too. They didn't want you know Joe Schmo from the foundation calling himself. Uh, they wanted independent investigators to do it. So, on one hand, I think this is exactly what you asked the foundation to do. Now, you don't like how it's being done right now, and that's okay. Like, like I'll grant you that. But surely this is better than what was happening before, right? Can't we just give them a little bit of grace that at least they're trying to do the right thing? Yeah, I think so. And reading about the experience, it sounds like the process was handled a little handled ham-handedly. And and it seems like they could have maybe resolved it a bit more quickly and and maybe even discreetly and and with... um, but I think, but the but the rigor is completely warranted, right? Part of the reason they also canceled the awards in 2020, 21, it's not just because all the nominees were white, but because they all, many also stood accused of harassment and poor work, workplace behavior. Yes. Um. So, like, yeah, no, this is, and I, I look, I don't think the chef who's profile in the article is really gonna get like this is a situation where the someone someone flagged it, right? Flagged it, and it seemed like a kind of BS accusation. She spoke to James Beard for 90 minutes. There were like doesn't seem like you violated our ethics policy and she wasn't disqualified. And she said, oh, well, I shouldn't have to go through this and then maybe get like, you know, uh, accused for bullying as part of the attention I get for, for James Beard. That's, that's absolutely fair. And maybe that speaks to the discretion that needs to happen and, um, and maybe like the, the, the way the investigation takes place. But I also don't think anyone will based on her actual behavior here versus uh, our friend no. in Alabama, like the, the other chef who who got disqualified for bad behavior, Timothy Hansis, who like kind of does seem and has a, has a former employer on the record in the article being like, 
he fucking threw plates at us and like would yell and yell until we cried right so they're look yeah it's hard to it's hard to manage behavior and i think uh a, a investigation to prevent rewarding people with bad behavior is come is a fair part of the process james future probably make explicit that it's part of the a part of the process right and have like uh, maybe maybe be as transparent as possible with how they go about doing it but no i mean it, it, it bump, bumpy and maybe like representative of a historic sort of uh bumbling from james beard in the way it's gone the first round but this should happen this should happen the the haunts thing is kind of proof that this is working in some yeah. ways i mean he still denies the allegations right i mean you know i get that but to have one of his former employees go on the record with the new york times making those kinds of allegations about plate throwing and whatnot I mean, that to me, that's a serious enough allegation where even if like the James Beard Award should be at least getting some praise for making the difficult decision to no longer consider that. That's exactly to consider Hansus for the award. That's exactly what they were being asked to do a couple of years ago. Now, yep. to your point, yes, ham handed. There also is like not a great, there's not a great process apparently for, um, <laughs> What happens after you've been disqualified? Apparently, as of right mm. now, in order to like maintain anonymity and stuff, they're like left the, the disqualified chefs are like still on the ballot. So they could technically win. And then it just goes to the second second place person. Um, so huh. it's kind of messy in terms of what happens after a chef is eliminated right now and people are taking issue with that. But look, it sounds like growing pains to me, um, not a fundamental flaw with the process or the organization. Yeah, look, the, the, the intention in this case, I think, is, is generally correct. And the process will hopefully be ironed out. That What you just described does not make much sense to me. Um, and that could be a timing thing. The fact that like the, the process for ethical evaluation came maybe too late and they probably need to you know, figure out a way to get a little bit smoother with that. But no, on a fundamental level, like no, this is this will be intended, and it should also. I'm not sure if it does. Should, in, in our opinion, in my opinion, I should say expand to business practice soon too, right? As we've, we're seeing in uh, LA with the case that we talked about a few weeks ago, um, and and all over the restaurant industry with and, and uh, with Rosetta, I think that eventually business practice should also be part of this criteria because if you're stealing wages from your employees, that is not a practice we need to celebrate. So. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have no problem. <laughs> I got, I, I got, I, I, it's a, it's a bummer. Uh, I'm sorry to, for the experience this chef had having to talk to someone for 90 minutes to confirm that she didn't violate ethical rules, but not mad. I'm not mad at it. I think, yeah, I think the worst look of this is just that she was actually doing some like really positive advocacy. It's yeah. unfortunate, right? She was doing some really positive advocacy. And then she gets like, quote unquote, interrogated for it. I would be pissed too. I get that. But I think that's just it, the optics of it are unfortunate. Um, but hey, sort of the optics of a lot of things, right? <laughs> um, can't help it. Can't help it. Uh, yeah, no, I don't. I think a successful year for James Beard. Look, they've had, they've had some negative press around these like kind of silly controversies, in my opinion. They clearly need to tighten up as an organization and, and, um, and they're adapting to these to the, the changes that they've been trying to implement since 2021, 22, since their 2022 audit, I think it was. Um, but you want, if, if you're James Beard, right? And if you are an awards sort of institution that we want to be able to respect and, and, and know is valid and 
um, continue to celebrate the winners and feel like the winners can have a, an institution that winners feel good celebrating, then, then this is part of the process. Yeah. Last question on this for you on the awards, not on, not on this particular topic. Do you think that this cements Los Angeles as the best food city in the United States right now in terms of their overall metal hall? So I, it's an interesting question. I both think yes. And because James Beard is finally here, you got to start thinking, wait, who are they now? Who are they behind right now? Because you know they're behind someone. I was on a, I listened to a podcast recently where uh, Dave Chang yeah, named Miami yeah. the best city in the US. I haven't heard anything about that. And I'm really curious. I got my parents live in Florida. I want to hit Miami and see what's going on because Miami now might be LA 2010, 2011. So and certainly LA has, in terms of brand and understanding, yeah. I think it's really beginning to cement. I was like, I think above New York, above, above SF as the most exciting color running place, but it has been that for a while. And I feel like the next cities are probably already reaching the level. So we'll be excited to see. Oh my God. Are we, are we like the, the Mayan empire on the verge of collapse? Is that basically what you're saying? I think it's a little bit dramatic. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a, uh, uh, like <laughs> LA, LA food is second best in the country. Is this the apocalypse? No, no, I think, I think we'll be okay. And I think all, I will say, I think LA like will oh, no. hopefully continue to be like, uh, like continue to be now for, for years to come is a consistent, um, culinary destination, even more so than it was in the aughts, maybe where it was really kind of beginning I think, to reestablish, to beginning to establish itself again. Um, yeah. Okay. Final question before I let you go for the day, father Saul, you've done great. How you feeling about the top chef finale? Do you think, uh, do you think that one of your uh, contestants is going to bring it home or is, uh, or is my champion Sarah Bradley going to take it home? I'm a little nervous, man. So obviously, I mean, the listeners know this. I've run away, run away winner, complete beatdown of Top Chef Fantasy as a whole. But to avoid becoming like those 2016 Golden State Warriors or 2015 Warriors, I got to bring home the title. You can't win regular season and not win the championship. No, history does not remember you in the same way. So I, I want the win. Buddha is like True. the guy, but the way that Sarah's narrative on the show has got me worried. Like I, I think she's kind of like they're centering attention on her in a way that kind of I think she she could pull it out. She's she's really dangerous. I was even tinkering with. I was listening to Pack Your Knives, my favorite other Top Chef podcast. Also the only other one I know. That talks about it. Actually, no, there's one other one. They actually executed a trade between their two contestants, between the two hosts. One host had Buddha and Gabri, and the other had Sarah. And the host with Sarah traded for Gabri in exchange for a future pick, a future pick in the next year draft, which I thought was really interesting. Because he's like, okay, look, that's I'm gonna dumb. get I'm gonna get two out of three. Buddha, it's the field versus Buddha, and then, but I'll do it in exchange for a future pick. And I was like, I wonder, I wonder. And now the thing is this: I couldn't propose that trade for you because he actually has a chance to win this season. Uh, the the guy with Sarah and Gabri, they're really close. I think they have a ten point gap because they're better at drafting than you. But I could not I could not propose something similar for you because you have no you have no upside. 
They have literally no upside. So I thought that was interesting. I think Sarah's a real threat. I'm I'm worried. I, I uh, what I feel confident about is I wouldn't take the trade. Has, I really wouldn't. Yeah, I think, yeah it's, it's a bad trade. It's a bad trade. It's a short term view. Here, I think that if if Buddha wins the season, this goes from being one of the best Top Chef seasons in recent history to Don't one of it. the worst. Yeah, don't and it's say because it. it's not because of my it's not because of it's not because of my personal dislike for Buddha. It really isn't. It's just because what makes Top Chef so great and the seasons that you know we remember so favorably from the past, it's the storylines, it's the twists and turns, it's the unexpected. This is just Manchester City winning the Premier League. Look, if you can't appreciate greatness, I can't help you. People love dynasties. Buddha as a back-to-back top chef <laughs> champ, the greatest student the show has ever seen, possibly possibly the most talented competitor on the show ever, right? I want to see greatness. I want to see LeBron win six championships. I want to see City run the table for a decade. I don't care. I want to see something no one else has ever seen, and this would be something no one's know? ever seen. And Not really. but Not in City's case, not really. But still... I, I like seeing greatness. Buddha is greatness. Number one overall pick, a brilliant pick by me. And uh, look, he but he is he is that ultimate favorite. He is Steph Curry MVP, seventy three wins. Is Sarah LeBron? We'll find out. I don't know. We'll see, man. But uh, we'll be back on Friday with a Top Chef recap. Um, we'll be joined by friend of the pod Daniel Fargo, forking around. Saul will be back uh, next week probably to do a more in-depth Top Chef sort of dissect. You know, we're going to really do a, like a – what's it called when someone dies? Um, post-mortem? The post <laughs> – no, what – Postmortem. Yeah. Hey, I, I I don't work for CSI, okay? Um, yeah. By the we'll, way. We'll be back next week to do that. Yeah. yeah. We, will, we should do the full – we'll do a full Top Chef post-mortem and we should seed. We got to talk about Padma Lakshmi leaving the show and who should replace her i think that's a that's a key topic as well i'm not ready no yeah i'm personally not emotionally ready i've been watching taste the nation on hulu just to like so that i don't miss her um already yeah we'll have to talk that we'll have to face our fears and talk about that at some point but father saul i want to thank you for coming on on short notice talking about this thanks bud good job by you Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to our very special guests, Donnie Narquinez and Father Saul. Don't forget, Thursday night is the Top Chef finale. Tune in, drop everything. Seriously, you're not going to want to miss it. And on Saturday, come back to our podcast feed and listen to me and a very special guest recap what went down. If you like what you heard today, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at the LA Countdown on TikTok and Instagram. That's T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. And you can now also find me on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.